Hello, I'm Rolf Fontanelle. This is the Schweb, the Secret History of Westminster Terrorism podcast. Today we are speaking with Professor Noah Gardner from Religious Studies in the University of South Carolina and a man who knows a thing or two about the great Ahmed Al-Buni. Thank you for uh, coming on the podcast, Noah. Of course, happy to do it. Who is this Al-Buni character? If you had to give the layman's kind of potted biography of the man and his significance... Okay. Um, Ahmed al-Buni is the name most famously associated with magic in Islam, as he's known to the modern. He is the most famous representative of magic in Islam. And there are a lot of distinctions to be made between the historical al-Buni and the al-Buni of memory right. who, who exists today. Let's, get the, let's look at the historical al-Buni, and then we can talk about al-Buni, the, the character. Sure. Because that, the, the cultural memory of al-Buni is really, really significant as well. Absolutely. So that's also an important uh, yeah. part of the story. But, so who was the guy, as far as we, we can kind of rely, in a kind of reliable, historicist way, talk about him? Right. Uh, there's not a whole lot we can say about him in a reliable, historicist way. He is, in, in sharp contrast to some writers of the period, he is not very autobiographical uh, in his text. He drops a few important clues, and we have a few important other pieces of data from other authors around the time. He lived in, or was born in Afrikia, which is to say in Muslim North Africa. His name, Albuni, suggests that he was, uh, he or his family were from the town of Buna, which is present-day uh, Anaba in uh, Algeria, and in the pre-Muslim period was a uh, hippo. As in Augustine of Hippo, wow. as the uh, bishopric of, of Augustine. And we don't really know for a fact if he was born and grew up in Buna, or if that was where his father was from, and thus that was the name that he took, or his grandfather, or, or whomever. Um, uh, uh, local nispas are weird that way, you're never quite sure. But mm. he may have been from, from Buna itself. The first place we can put him historically is in Tunis, probably sometime around the turn of the 13th century. Got it. Uh, the seventh century uh, history. Uh, we know that because one of the very rare mentions that he makes of any of his teachers uh, is that he has a, a half a page long mention in praise of his master, Abdulaziz al Maftawi. Abdulaziz al Maftawi was a, a, a Sufi sheikh in Tunis. Uh, his tomb is still there uh, in Tunis, it can still be visited in Tunis. And he's an interesting figure. He didn't leave us a whole lot in the way of writing. Uh, there's one sort of poetic text that he left that is quite disputed. There, there are reasons to really wonder whether or not Amatawi wrote it or not. Uh, it has been edited and published by uh, Stephen Hirtenstein and someone else. But uh, the main reason we've heard of Amatawi, at least in, in Western Islamic studies, the main reason we're aware of him is because his other uh, famous disciple was the great Muhyiddin ibn Arabi, Arguably one of the most famous Muslims ever, or most famous Sufis ever. So uh, this is, let's pause for a second. This is a serious scene, right? This one sheikh is producing the, maybe the heaviest Sufi cat of all time, yes. and the heaviest magic cat of all time, who is also a very heavy Sufi right. cat. And this, I mean, in terms of the arc of my, my research in Alboni, this was my first great score, Right, was, was discovering that he had been a Matui's disciple. Because for a long time, in, in modern Islamic intellectual and cultural history, you had a distinct <laughs> distinction between, between Ibn Arabi is the great mystic, genius, wonderful, everyone loves Ibn Arabi, he's a whole cottage industry within Islamic studies in himself, and then that stupid magician Albuni, 
that was not worth looking at in terms of the history of Islamic thought or anything else, largely based on this misapprehension about the Shams of Mahadath, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, so to be able to place him in company with Ibn Arabi helped a lot. And if you read his actual authentic works, um, I mean, I, I suspected it before I found the proof uh, that there was at least some similarity in their background because there are numerous similarities in their thought. Uh, most importantly, they are both uh, arguably the the founders or at least the most famous representatives of letterism, of, of the science of letters and names. Uh, Albuni and Ibn Arabi are the, are the two names that come up with that. Uh, so the fact that they have a common teacher there in Tunis is very striking. And, of course, makes one immensely curious about what Abdelaziz al-Mahdabi was really up to there, what there he was in teaching. Tunis. Yeah. Um, so we can place him in Tunis uh, with no date, but presumably as a, as a disciple, would have been in the younger part of his life. Um, although we don't really know when he was born. Probably, you know, 1170-ish, cool. uh, uh, somewhere in there. Uh, just a guess, really. And he then at some point moved uh, over to Egypt, and this is a very common pattern. Uh, People in the West go east, uh, especially for Hajj, uh, for the pilgrimage to, to Mecca. Uh, but often, in, in uh, there's a very famous trope in, in Islamic history of the Rihla uh, Fitarab al Ilm, the journey in search of knowledge. And so, this may have been, that was a fairly normal arc. Back to a few other things we, we know about his earlier life, mostly from various, from the khutbah, various manuscripts, from the, from the sort of ceremonial opening of many texts where they talk about the great scholar saint Gnostic blah 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 Ahmed al-Buni and then they'll list out you know a fairly lengthy iteration of his name and he is uh, Ahmed bin, bin Ali bin Yusuf uh, al-Buni but often it will be mentioned that his father uh, was a Quran reciter so if his father really was a Quran reciter we can guess that he was had at least a basic education uh, you know Quran memorization literacy, uh, all that stuff. So at some point he goes to Egypt. There's good reason to think uh, that he would have taken the boat to Alexandria. That was the normal way, rather than trying to cross the Libyan desert, uh, which was a very dangerous and treacherous route. You hopped a boat. Those could be dangerous too, but... Quicker, though. And a lot quicker and not as dangerous as going through Libya. And there is uh, manuscript evidence, mainly in the form of little marginal notes, and manuscripts that we can place him in Alexandria, uh, at least at one point. Someone talks about having studied with him in Alexandria. Uh, but we know that he ended up mainly in Cairo. Uh, he records having gone on the Hajj. Uh, he only mentions it once. He may have done it multiple times. That wasn't uncommon. But at some point from Egypt, he seems to have gone on the Hajj and then returned. Um, and we know that in Cairo, he wrote two of his, his most major works, uh, that he wrote in Cairo almost simultaneously, it seems, right around uh, 1224 and the, end of 12, at the beginning of 1225. We know that he promulgated these works through uh, uh, a traditional means of promulgating a, a new book uh, in the world at that time, of giving a live reading of it, or of sitting, usually you'd have one of the disciples would read it aloud in the presence of the master kind of mm -hmm. thing. Uh, and this is known, uh, what the English term is, to, to audition a book. Right. And we know that he auditioned these two works. He, he auditioned them both in the uh, Arafa Cemetery, or Qarafa Cemeteries, it's written, 
which was a, uh, a place for Sufis. There were, there were any number of Sufis. Uh, uh, many people, even still today, live in the Qarafa cemeteries. Yeah. People have to understand that this Cairo has perhaps the coolest cemetery culture in the world, and that these cemeteries are towns. Yeah. And people live with the dead, and there are madrasas, there are cafes, there are um, mosques, everything. And, but it's, it's just all tombs. And it, is, it is famously known as the City of the Dead, the, the, the Arafa Cemetery. Yeah. Um, and at the time, it was still fairly marginal to Cairo, to, to Cairo and Fostat. I mean, it was off, you know, it was out on the edge. Uh, now the city has totally engulfed the, the Arafa Cemeteries. But at the time, it was still, it was still uh, quite literally peripheral uh, to the city. And it was a, a very open space. You have a lot of conservative jurists and whatnot at the time who rant and rave about the things that go on in the cemeteries and men and women mixing and, and strange Sufi rites and, and all this. So it was a, it was a Sufi, a peripheral Sufi space. And we know that he auditioned two of his books there. Um, that may have been among the last things he did uh, and that the death dates we have for them uh, as far as I know, the only source of these death dates is in Hajj Khalifa's Qash uh, Azanun, which is this major 17th century biobibliographical work by a Ben Ottoman scholar, Hajj uh, Khalifa or Katib Jalabi, uh, either name works. And uh, this is a massive compendium of lists of works and subjects and, and uh, with very brief biographies, uh, at least death dates of authors. Yeah. And he, in several places in the Kash, he gives uh, 622 Hijri, which is 1225 uh, uh, Common Era, uh, as Albuni's death date. And then in one place, he gives 630, which would be 1232 or 3. Okay. So he didn't um, die at a very old age. Well, we don't really know. Uh, you Depending know, he, on when he was born. I he guess. may have. Uh, but I think he probably died not at an old age. Um, if he, Ibn al put it this way, Ibn al died... At a, at a relatively advanced age in uh, uh, 638-1240. So if we assume he was around the same age as Adabi, then yes, he may have died in his 40s or something yeah. like that. But we really don't know. He also may have just been an older an older disciple of the Matthews. Right. Um, so it's really not, not clear. Uh, and people tend to go with that 622-1225 date. I always at least mention the 630 date because we really don't know. But we have no more literary output from him after that that we know of that can be dated after 1225. Got it. And he certainly had followers in uh, there in Cairo. We know there are a couple of them are named from, from the audition certificate, so we don't know anything else about them aside from okay. brief mentions of their names. And we know that he was buried eventually in the, in the Arafa. We know from a European source, actually, that, that his tomb was a site for visitation uh, at least... Through the 18th century, it might be into the 19th. I'd have to check on that. But for centuries yeah. after, his, his tomb was a major site of visitation for people. And this is very common in the Islam of the time to visit saints' tombs. Yeah, so, so he's clearly attained to, I guess we don't, if that's the evidence base, what you've just said, mm-hmm. is it safe to assume that he had some kind of ijazah from his sheikh? Or set up as an entrepreneur. But either way, he became a teacher. He became a sheikh of his own. He certainly became a sheikh of, of his own. I mean, this is a very interesting moment in, in Sufism in Egypt. I mean, he comes at such a crucial moment in the history of Sufism, period. Because the, the 13th century uh, and the 12th, but really the 13th, is a period when the, the Sufi Turok emerged, the, the, the Sufi orders. Yeah. You had had, Sufism had, you know, 
it's historically visible from the late 9th century onward uh, in terms of people talking about being Sufis, but it seems to have been a, a less corporate undertaking. Yeah, it was uh, free In the early centuries. Well, yeah, you, you might have several masters, you might travel between them, uh, uh, small groups, you know, there were some, some houses that would house people, but it was, not a, it was not a corporate movement the way the Sufi Brotherhoods, the, the Torah came to be. And I think it's significant that he's there right at this juncture, because there are a lot of, I think, claims to power in his, in his works uh, right. that have to do with the power of the Sufi sense. Um, so yes, he certainly has some kind of following. This is an interesting time because you have Egyptian Sufism prior to that, the Ayyubids, and this is still in the Ayyubid period uh, when he's there in, in Egypt, the Ayyubids who had taken over from the, the Ismaili Fatimid uh, uh, Empire, uh, taken over, puts it nicely, but who had conquered and, and overthrown the Ismaili yeah. Fatimid Empire, uh, the Ayyubids uh, had very actively promoted Sunni Islam uh, in various ways, including through the, the patronizing of Sufi uh, of Sufis. Uh, so there were several Sufi hostels, Kanakas and things at the yeah. town at the time. But that Sufism seems to have been quite conservative, uh, not terribly inventive, etc. But at the same time, you had these waves of Sufis coming from Al-Andalus and, and the Maghreb, the, the Western Islamic world, who are really spicing things up, who are really coming in with, with a whole bunch of new strange ideas uh, and new lineages and all that. And so you get the sense of quite a bit of friction going on in the, in the Egyptian Sufi world at the time with these, these interlopers from the West. Right. Um, Ibn Adami has a quite hilarious take on Egyptian Sufis in that he thinks very little of them. Right. Uh, yeah. He does not think well of them at all. And he was not well treated by them, apparently. Um, so is that a key to thinking about how he's paying for all this, how he's making his living? Oh, sure. I mean, I, I think he no doubt had, had patrons of some kind or, or had disciples who would, who would support him. Yeah. Um, I mean, he and in, in his... Talk about what it means to be a Sufi. It's very has all the customary poverty and all that in there. So you know we have no idea. Uh, he may have been sleeping in a hovel in the cemetery, or or who knows? He may have had some wealthy patron who who treated him much better than that. Yeah. But uh, but we really have no no record of that kind of thing. Uh, now we've located him. The the connection with Ibn Al Arabi is just absolutely it's fascinating. Important. It's yeah. important. It makes you immediately start. Going, Ooh, speculate, speculate, but let's not speculate. Let's talk about what we know. Well, what he, what we know, he wrote. He has attributed to him this very, very famous magical miscellany, the great son of knowledge. Yeah, um, which you have shown. Well, you and another scholar have kind of simultaneously shown Jean Charles Poulon, and actually, I think Jean Charles made some of the most crucial discoveries in that in that okay. regard. Uh, um, that it, it is not by him. It incorporates. Elements from writings by him that are genuine, but it's not by him. Right. So if someone slapped the name Booney on that work because there was a certain cachet or a certain appropriateness to using his name that they wanted to exploit, right? Yeah. If we really want to talk about the sense of motive, it's going to take a few minutes because it's a, it's, a com- it's a complicated story. Well, let's talk about... I'd love to do that later, yeah. but let's talk about his authentic writings first. Sure. And sure. what's in them. What, what sure. is his thought like? Why is this guy interesting? So there are there are five works that I would you know I would I would bet money on on him having written that I'm, that I'm confident that he that he wrote. I could list off the titles in Arabic if you want. I don't know. Let's have Arabic and English. That'll be helpful. Yeah. Uh, the Mawakaf al Khayat, the uh, 
in a sense, like the the stopping places and the goals, or, or something to that effect. Yeah. It's, it's you know, medieval Arabic titles are often not not very explanatory of what the book is about. And they're often very inflated as well. Right. It's important. Yeah. It's more important that they rhyme than that they inform you uh, about anything. Morocco al Qayyat and Hadayat al Qasidin, Wa Nahayat al Wasalin. The uh, well, I don't want to whip out bad translations of these. More about the you know the 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 goals of the pious and the and the the destinations of the seekers or something like that for for Hadayat al Qasidin. These two books are interesting uh, mainly for the fact that they are fairly conventional Sufi manual books. Uh, you know, the Mu'akha Fakhrayat is a very classical Sufi-type composition where you take various important terms like like poverty and repentance and whatnot, and then you break them down into levels. So for the novice, this means this, and then for the adept, it means this, and then for the highest of the adepts, it means this. And this is very standard to Sufi thought, that you have these terms and these tasks that as you ascend through the through the hierarchy, as you ascend through the ranks, are are transformed in various ways. There are ever new dimensions of them the higher you go. So that's pretty much what the what the Mawakaf, uh, is about. And the Hadith of Qasidin is quite similar. It's on slightly different topics. But these are both kind of classic Sufi Sufi works. If you really know what to look for, there are little bits of letrism and stuff in them, but they're fairly subtle uh, and they're they're largely pretty conventional. And then well, let me talk about the other two that are easier to talk about. Uh, his work, Al Mahuda, uh, sort of the, the banner of guidance, is an exhaustive discussion of the names of God. It is arguably his magnum opus. Uh, I've only really begun seriously trying to, to penetrate it. It, is, uh, it has gotten not as much attention because it is not plainly magical in any sense. It is, again, a, a, it's, a, it's a, a very pious work. It's about the names of God. It does have a lot of practical instruction in it, but in a very Sufi way. It, has, it, has, it is very focused on, on this notion of self-transformation through taking on the qualities of the divine. Right. And this is often done through through dhikr, through repetitions of the names uh, and whatnot. And it is, a, it is a guide to what you can achieve in the way of self-transformation through these names. Yeah. Uh, plus, just a whole lot of thought about the names and what they what they mean. And this, when we talk about uh, about letrism, this is very important because what what guys like Alboni and Ibn Arabi, you know, even though we, we often call this the science of letters, for these authors though, it is quite clearly the science of letters and names. Boom. And that's that's key. That it's not just about the letters; it's about their their participation in the names of God. So these two works, and this is one of the two works he wrote there in Cairo, probably shortly before his death. There's Alam Huda, which is on the names, and then his work, uh, the subtleties of the illusions regarding the superior letters, uh, which is about the letters. So you have letters and names represented very nicely in these, in these, these two major works uh, that he wrote probably at the end of his life. And those, for those who are interested in magic and mysticism and whatnot, I mean, those are probably the, the real focal points uh, in many ways. But he then also did author a work called Shemsamaadaf or Taafarawadaf, the Son of Knowledge and the Subtleties of the Gnostics or something to that effect. Yeah, you know? Gnostics meaning the knowers, those who know. The knowers, those who know yeah. with the implication that it is a kind of knowledge you don't gain from books, it's a, yeah. a knowledge you gain from direct experience. So he did actually author a book by that title, but it 
apparently was not terribly popular because as far as we know at present, there are one and a half surviving copies of it. Right. Uh, there's a copy in Cairo and there's a half a copy in Damascus. And uh, part of why it's probably not very, it deals mainly in cosmology, as does much of his work. I mean, his work is really, he's known as a writer on magic, and he does talk about stuff that we could, at first glance, look at and say, magic. Uh, but he spends much more time on cosmology. And by cosmology, I mean not just the structure of the physical cosmos, but of the, the various emanative levels from the Godhead that end up resulting in the, in the cosmos yeah. in a classic, quote-unquote, neoplatonic uh, emanational cosmos. Uh, and and Chansomotov, the actual Chansomotov, is mostly, uh, almost entirely cosmological in its, in its origin. And then he probably wrote, or at least his words have a hand in uh, another work of his that was very popular, uh, which is a book on uh, invocatory prayer, on dua, on the, the, yeah. not the five daily prayers, but prayers you often append after those where you ask God for something. And there, he, give, he gives you loads of prayers, right? Right, he writes... He writes for this, do this one. For he, this, do this one. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's quite flexible on what goals they're for, but he, but he makes a point to the fact that the seekers should think carefully about what... Each, each of his dua focuses on different names of God. Right. So you want to think about what names of God you're calling on because different ones are more effective for different goals that you have in praying your, your, your dua. And this is a this is a well-known genre. I mean, there are collections of dua. Uh, uh, although you technically you can improvise your own dua, and that's fine. But it's very popular to use these pre-written ones that are usually attached to certain saints or scholars or other figures uh, from the past. What sets Aloma apart from earlier ones is that uh, his prayers are timed to the hour, uh, and I think. I can't say it with absolute confidence, but it seems to be that he's using a system of Hellenistic planetary hours. Yes. And the prayers seem to fit that theme. So the prayer for what would be the, the first hour of the day of Sunday, which would be solar, of course, uh, is awfully solar. In right. This, in this, so this is this sort of breaking news. This is sort of your work in progress at the moment. Right. This is yeah. stuff I'm working on, on right now. Uh, but the authorship of this of this uh, work is it's tricky. Uh, those other five works I mentioned, one of the ways, and this is the way uh, uh, Jean-Charles Coulon, this, this scholar in Paris, who has also written uh, a great deal about Albuni, who wrote this massive 3,000-page dissertation on Albuni. Um, we were working at the same time, and we didn't know of each other's existence until late in the process. But by that time, we had arrived at the same, almost entirely the same bibliographic conclusions. Which, which I've always taken as a as a good sign. Yeah, uh, and John Charles is a friend, and we we yeah, we speak frequently about these things. But part of those five works I mentioned first, part of what's interesting about them is that they are they are networked together. There is a web of cross references that joins them uh, to each other. So does he say things like, um, as I discuss in this other book, da da da? Right. Like, for, I've for, treated this more, at greater length in this book. For more on this topic, right? See see this book. And, and they work. I mean, those cross-references. And actually, part of how Zhang Zhao identified the, the authentic Shams of and that's the major discovery that, that Zhang Zhao made in this regard, was that he found the copy in Damascus. Uh, the way that Zhang Zhao verified it was that, in fact, the cross-references made sense, right. as opposed to with all these other texts that bear that title that had always been, been attributed to him. So you have this solid core. I've, I've called the Melbuni's core works of these five that we can quite confidently say through these cross-references 
Uh, and this is a known tactic for Sufi writing at the time and for, for esotericist writing in general. You see this all over the uh, Jabirian alchemical corpus, too. This tactic of tadid uh, al-ilm, uh, the, the, the scattering of knowledge. This is something we've spoken of at length in the podcast in many contexts. Okay, good. Yeah. So, so this seems to be, it's a fairly, it's not a very intense version of it because he is telling you what book to go look in. But you would still need to have them all. Right, um, and they're very interesting manuscript uh, paratexts of people trying to list all the titles by Albuni. You can tell people are they want to know what all he wrote, and they're trying to make sense of that often in the margins. And actually, I should say, or at least I'd, I'd, I'd like to say, you know, my my basic shtick as a scholar is that I work at the at the juncture of the study of, of manuscripts and manuscript culture of the of the history of how books were made and transmitted and recorded and and all that at the juncture of that with these topics of Sufism and occult sciences. And that, to begin with, was out of necessity because none of the authentic Buni has ever been printed, uh, basically. Uh, but also came from a, a love for manuscripts as I got into them. When you're a historian who deals with texts, it is very rewarding to sometimes hold an 800-year-old book in your hand and, and you know, look at books that people actually read. Yeah. Um, so there's a great deal, and in my dissertation of many years ago, there's a, a lot of, which was really mainly about the circulation of his works. So they got into the content a bit, but it was mainly about their circulation and transmission. And that was important to me because Albuni, again, in, in modern uh, Islamic intellectual history, uh, Albuni had been so discounted. And when people did talk about him, there's this, this terrible entry in Encyclopedia of Islam II by uh, Dietrich. He's written off as popular. It's the idea that right. he was just a collector of popular magic, and of course, popular is bad and unimportant, and, and just right. you know, what the peasants are doing, uh, and has nothing to do with Islam or Islamic intellectual or history. mysticism. Uh, well, Sufism. or or Sufism. Well, that that gets complicated around Sufism, uh, which is often, in a sense, denigrated as popular too. But what I was able to establish in the dissertation was that, first of all, the idea of popular literature is frankly kind of absurd uh, in a place with you know 5% literacy rates up until the 20th century. Uh, but you do have books that are, are about silly things the peasants do that are for the entertainment of the court or something. So that might have been conceivable. But when you read his authentic works, they are anything but popular. They are... Uh, elaborately obscure and difficult and very much of the Sufi writing of the time, which is to say they are all illusion with, with an A. Yeah. Uh, uh, Albuni, very rarely does he argue or explain anything per se. He strings together hadith and tales of Sufi masters and strange diagrams and uh, you, you always have to read between the lines to try to get at what exactly he's, he's talking about. So again, anything but popular literature. This, yeah. is, this is specialist stuff. And uh, as importantly, from the, the manuscripts, and there are hundreds of them, it's uh, this massive manuscript inheritance of, of text attributed to Albuni. And if people are interested in them, they can go online and find your thesis, which of course we'll link to in the bibliography. Yes, yes. It's and you, you give massive, massive lists of the manuscripts. So it's a, it's a catalog, basically. You've put together. Yeah, I, I, I took about 350 manuscripts into consideration. Uh, and people sometimes mistakenly say that that was exhaustive, and it was not, mm -hmm. just to be clear. There yep. are probably at least as many more out there. It is, it is not an exhaustive list, but it is a big one. So this tells us that his main works were very widely read, right? Yes. So he was widely big. copied, and, mm -hmm. and I've mapped out numbers of copies from centuries. So you can see that in the 13th century, there are very few surviving manuscripts. Uh, and, and 
you have to take into account natural attrition. There are fewer older manuscripts, but I don't think that's all. I have a thesis about why you get fewer. But then in the in the beginning, in the kind of the second quarter of the 14th century onward, boom, there's just this, this huge proliferation of manuscripts. So yeah. he... Uh, well, my, in short, my theory on this is that he, he says many times, of course, in these books, don't share these with the unworthy, uh, you know, standard kind of execrations. Uh, and scholars often treat those as, as a literary trope, uh, as an embellishment, mm-hmm. as a way to drum up business. A bit of rhetorical esotericism. Yeah, and I, I, uh, there is truth to that, uh, but I, I f- uh, feel strongly that Albuni meant it. I, I think those works were not meant to be circulated to Hoi Polloi. They were, they were meant to go to people who were qualified. I think he was serious about that. And this is an interesting thing, too, where you have to, to think about the history of manuscript culture in order to think about the history of these texts. In the 13th century, Arabic manuscript culture was such that texts were, written texts were largely, you might say, epiphenomena of human teaching relationships. And they were not meant to. You did not buy a book at the market and take it home and read it by yourself. Books were read aloud. They were read in groups. Uh, most people were illiterate, uh, including among Sufis. So, so you likely would have had the guy who could read reading and a sheikh commenting and everyone else sitting and listening together. Uh, it's very important to take this context into, uh, into account. And for a long time, it was the idea that you would just pick up some book and read it and take knowledge from it in many fields of Islamic knowledge, was really quite, quite looked down upon. You were supposed to read a book with a teacher who had a lineage back to the author. So mm-hmm. this teacher had heard it. That's what this audition ceremony is for. This is how you get, how you're licensed to, to read yeah. and teach a book. And that was very much the paradigm within which Albuni wrote, uh, which is to say there are always debates about writing and secrecy, and people tend to be like, oh, if it was really a secret, you wouldn't have written it down. And I think that's a misapprehension. I, I, I think at that time still, you could reasonably expect a book to be kept secret and to be, and to be transmitted in the proper ways. And yeah. also, if he's writing with a certain intentional obscurity, that, the, the, that there's a self-hiding nature to what he's saying yeah. because you have to do the work, because of the I'm And then also, even with Tabdidalayim, you maybe don't have all the interpretive keys. Right. You need a shake. There to right, tell you, right. well, this is about this. And there's, there's immense amounts of, of Boonian writing where you have to assume that someone was filling in the gaps right. with oral instruction because otherwise, how would, how would you ever learn to do any of the things he's talking about? Got it. He is not a, his books are often characterized as grimoires, and in my opinion, that's a, a really a mischaracterization. Right. In terms of if a grimoire is a how to book. Yeah. Uh, then his books, there are elements of how to scattered throughout his stuff, but they are they are not primarily how to books. I, I, I would say. So yes, I think it's a reasonable expectation of secrecy, and I think indeed for about a century after his life, I suspect these books moved in fairly closed channels. And something you talk about in your thesis, which is very fascinating, very interesting to our comparative enterprise on the Schweb, is this process of de-esotericization. So this stuff gets out into the wild yep. and starts being copied and, and it does indeed become kind of available at whatever the, the equivalent of bookshops. It does eventually, yeah. But even in the, you know, Makrezi uh, uh, writing in the, in the, uh, the 15th describes his books as uh, uh, much sought after and difficult to obtain. Right. 
uh, and he, he has long, I don't remember it off the top of my head, but he has some line about, like, people compete viciously to get a hold of these books, you know. Okay. There's, there's real, these are sought after and hard to get, and people compete over them. Uh, so even then, you know, yes, his works got out, and his name was certainly known, uh, but at least for, for Marquise, there's still some, you know, a notion that his stuff is hard to obtain. Okay. It's important. This gives us a little bit of um, an insight into his what happens after he dies, like kind of his influence, his Nachleben. Right. Uh, there's lots here I want to go back to, yep. but to, just to complete our cycle, if we can talk, if you can do it in a summary way, talk about his Nachleben in intellectual sure. history. And I know part of that is to do with the pseudo boonie, yes, which is maybe a separate conversation. But first of all, like the actual, the, the reputation that his works had, his genuine works, and he had like a lot of modern people, if they've heard of Al-Buni, think of him as this proponent of Islamic magic. Oh, his his current reputation among in the in the Muslim world, well, many many spaces within the Muslim world, he's he's practically a Satanist. I mean, he's, right, he's, yeah, he's like an the, evil the the, 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 guy. Otto, the Otto Faust or something, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but well, that, what was his reputation in, thing. in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries? Right. He has his detractors. So Ibn Taymiyyah mentions him very briefly. And accuses him of being a sun worshiper and a, and a, and a pagan, uh, and a little one-line, you know, uh, uh, passing mention, mm-hmm. uh, referring to Aluma Noraniya as his, his point of evidence. Some of his books were incredibly popular, like like Aluma Noraniya, uh, was a, was a very popular book. I don't think I really finished talking about the authorship of that, but we can come back to it if you want. And uh, many people held him in, in high regard. The Sufi biographer Almanawi. Uh, writing in the 16th century, has a, uh, you know, a section on him that is fairly generic, it's, it's, but it's posing him as a saint. He's one of the great, he's one of the, one of the Sufi saints, and, uh, and his, he was capable of producing miracles and, and all these things, you know, so you have this, this Sufi memory of him uh, that is still quite positive, um, and then you have his occasional detractors, like Ibn Taymiyyah, like Ibn Khaldun, Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who labels him as one of the, the founders of letrism in a, in a bad way. Um, Ashaltabi over in Andalus has some, some fairly negative things to say about him. But then you have this positive memory of him. Uh, one of the, I, I think the earliest literary mention of him ever is in the introduction to the, the still very famous and widely used Arabic dictionary, uh, Lasan al-Arab, produced at the, at the end of the 13th century. And in the introduction to Lasan al-Arab, he's talking about language and talking about Arabic, and he has a little section on magic you can do, I guess you call it magic, but on miracle, miraculous things you can do with letters. Uh, and he talks about Albuni as one of the great masters of this. Uh, and he says, and I have tried some of these, these things myself, and they work. And this is, you know, one of the most respected lexicologists in the history of Arabic lexicology. This dictionary is still, and it's published, it's online, there are searchable online versions of it. It's, a, it's one of the major classical Arabic dictionaries. Yeah. Uh, so that, as far as I know, that's, that's the earliest literary mention of him that I found, is, is Munzor uh, singing his praises. That's a great context, yeah. day. Yeah. That, he, that his work with, his work at the uh, intersection of language and <coughs> magic, let's say, is... Mentioned first not in a magic context, but in a grammar context. A dictionary. Yeah, a dictionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah literally a dictionary. Yeah, yeah. It's my kind of dictionary. Yeah. 
Thank you very much for that uh, picture, which which allows us to kind of get a little bit of a mental image of this guy, where he lived, when he lived, what he was doing, trying to reconstruct some of the 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 meat of his life. So let's go back to the um, the disputed authorship. Well, there's two. I guess there's two kind of on the edges of authenticity works we need to discuss. Let's get the the easy one out of the way first, or the quicker one. With uh, Aluma. Yeah. So Aluma Noronia. Um... One of the issues with it, one of the things that makes the attribution of it difficult is that I mentioned those other five works that all cross-reference each other. And this the problem one is they make no mention of Aluma, and neither does Aluma refer to any of them. This is obviously, it raises one's hackles when, if you care about authentic Albuni, which I do, I'm, I'm interested in kind of disentangling his actual work from later uh, text attributed to him. So that's a little hair-raising. In a totally unscientific manner, I can say parts of it really feel like Albuni. Mm. They really feel like Albuni. And my French counterpart, uh, Jean-Charles, who's the only person I know who's read at least as much Albuni as I have, uh, feels the same way. And he, he actually feels a little stronger about it, I think. I, I, I think he's more definitive in attributing it to Albuni. But the manuscript corpus is highly varied. This was as... as as we say it nicely, this was a living text, right. uh, at least well into the 14th century and probably beyond. Often there's an additional chapter on on Alfalk, on, on magic squares, yep. uh, tacked onto the end, but I've seen at least two different chapters on Alfalk tacked onto the end, and you know, so there's and the different parts will be in different order. Uh, there's a big table in the book where you, you figure out which prayer to use at which hour of which day. As far as I can tell, all the tables are defective, they're, they're very difficult to use. Uh, but some of them compl- uh, some of them in uh, one line of versions of the text uh, contains these these almost touchingly basic directions on how to use a table. It was obviously right. meant for people that were like, what do you do with this? Uh, you know, place one finger on the on the day and one finger on the hour, and then as it says, walk your fingers until they until they meet uh, on the grid. Uh, but so immense variations in the text. Uh, I, I do think. I mean, I, I I do think some core parts of it were written by Alboni. Okay. Uh, but there are some indications in the text that suggest that it was dictated, which was a common writing method. Yep. Uh, one of the colophons has a strange. It's an unusual formula for a colophon, where it says here is the is the is the end of the you know our master's kalam, the end of his speech, and that's not a typical way to put it right. so it may suggest a, a dictation scenario um, and dictating books is quite common but but this I, I do really wonder if this may have been put out by his disciples after his death and assembled from notes they had of, of his lectures or, or something like that uh, and then interpolated with all kinds of other additional material to be helpful to, to help explain certain right. things and, whatnot. and like oh he, they left out the alfalk like Got to add that, I'm right? Like, and then someone puts some other yeah. stuff at the end, and all that. So it's a, you know, it's a. I do think he played a part in it. I, I think he's there. Interesting. In so that's a, a kind of Boonian work. Certainly, yeah. I mean, Even I, mean, if it's I, not I would, by I would him. call it Boonian rather than quasi Boonian, although parts of it are probably not by him. Okay, know, cool. In my, in my estimation, and that's the book that got. Even Thymia is so pissed off. That book was very popular, and it comes up a lot among his critics. So, so right. even Thymia uh, mentions it. He actually gets the title wrong. He calls it a, a, a shola norania, which is basically just another word for flame. So he, you know, yeah. he misremembers it, but you can tell what book he's talking about. Uh, Ibn Khaldun complains about a book he calls the Kitab al-Mat, 
that he attributes to Albuni, uh, which I'm 95% sure he means Aluma Norania, because it includes a section on the Ambat, which is basically a, a way of classifying the divine names into ten groups. So, what's in this book? Let's talk about what's in this book. What's what's there that's going to get Ibn Taymiyyah pissed off? Because that's obviously it's got to be worth reading. If it's well, Ibn Taymiyyah specifically accuses him of being a star worshiper because so, of the kind of astralized planetary week stuff, or is there more? Presumably, there? because of the the idea that he is arranging dua on an astrological basis. Right. So he's being a subian, basically, uh, or uh, something. Yeah, something. So I, I I don't remember what word he exactly used. I think he says sun worshiper actually. But well, I'd have to look it up again. Ibn Khaldun, he complains about it. How does he do it? He compares it to, uh, he's complaining about Khayat uh, al-Hakim, the, the, the work that would become the Picatrix. And some section of Khayat al-Hakim, I don't know if it's the planetary invocations uh, or something like that that he's, he's upset about. But he's upset about basically a merger of astrological, astral-magical uh, wisdom with Quranic material and stuff like that yeah. he's un- unhappy about. Uh, and he mentions Albuni in that regard. Um, Ibn Khaldun, in my opinion, I, I don't know if you ever read any Albuni or not. Ibn Khaldun uh, borrowed a great deal of material uh, from his friend, well, erstwhile friend, Ibn Khatib, who was uh, an Andalusian uh, bureaucrat and, and uh, you know, poet and whatnot. And Ibn Khatib wrote a very interesting book called Rarat uh, al-Tarif, uh, uh, where he, in one section of one of these vast books that goes all over the place, but in one section he's discussing uh, Sufis from the Western Islamic world who he finds interesting but perhaps troublingly radical in their in their claims of divine knowledge and whatnot. Mm. And Al-Buni, along with, with Ibn Arabi and Ibn Sabahin and various other figures, are, are in that group. And Al-Khatib actually plagiarizes a lengthy section from Al-Tawaf al-Sharat that he, he it's much like an undergrad paper. He changes keywords in various places when, when plagiarizing it. Uh, but he uses that to represent all of them. He's like, this is their cosmology. Right, these lengthy cosmological sections from the from the Latif. So he's sort of doing like a, a heresiological exercise. Yeah, but gentler than that. He's not he's not condemning anyone. Yeah. And actually, that book got him killed uh, eventually. It was used as an excuse to kill him, and the excuse was that he he mentioned all these radical Sufis without criticizing them sufficiently. He was too sympathetic to them. But uh, that's because of the regime he was living under. This was court politics. They just needed an excuse to kill him. It was a it was a court politics thing. Right. Uh, but, uh, but he's the one who calls it Kitab al-Anmat, and I'm pretty sure Ibn Khaldun just took that from him. His note on, on Kitab al-Anmat, which, again, I think is Aluman Nodaniya, uh, he has a wonderful note that he's basically he's expressing concern that just an ordinary Muslim is going to pick this book up and think it's just a book of prayers and use them and not realize that there are, he says, Albuni has put all kinds of occult technique into the book. And he's concerned that an innocent reader is going to pick it up and just think it's prayers and not realize that he's activating other powers right. uh, that he might be unaware of. Which is uh, interesting because that that caution would be kind of shared by Albuni himself, presumably. Like, you, well, don't, right. you don't want to mess with this because what if you, you know, do the, the prayer at the wrong time and you end up with the wrong hawas being invoked and... Yes and no. My, my, my other thesis about Aluma and why it's not in that network of, of those five works, and this is still very much, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not convinced by my own argument. I'm, this is one of the ones I'm kicking around, is that it may have been the book he intended for popular consumption. Mm-hmm. This may have been the book that, that he wanted to put out there for, for the people. 
Interesting. Um, and even then, not for just anybody, but for more run-of-the-mill Sufis. There's all kinds of instruction on how to do thicker and other things in there. Uh, it's, it's actually an unusually practical book. Uh, Sufi literature rarely goes into detail on how to do thicker or what thicker you should do. Because that was stuff you got from your from your teacher. Yeah, you didn't need to read about that in a book, and it was and it was tailored. It was usually personalized to the to the disciple. Yeah, so it is a little unusual in that respect. But I do wonder if it if it may have been the the book that was intended for more public consumption, and that's why it doesn't mention any of the ones that are that are not. Yeah, you know, and that that's also interesting because it's it's if that theory is right or approximately right, or, right. you know, roughly in ballpark, in it. Yeah. then you're looking at something like an experimental new literary genre, as, as Sufism changes, as as new and really quite radical and crazy and, and oogly-boogly and occult ideas are circulating around within Sufism, getting absorbed, getting new syntheses are being made. There's also people experimenting with, like, what would a, a Sufi paperback look like? The, the, as it were, right, right. Like a, in, in a terms of, of literary form that we publish not in the context of like this is to be guarded and used in the context of Sheikh Murid relationship, right. but just it's going to be available for people who want to improve their connection with Allah through like an astralized prayer, yeah, uh, scenario. Part, part of part of uh, an element of this argument for me is in the in the khutbah well, in the Amalbad and the the introduction to the book, yeah. He frames the book, he frames most of his books as, you know, this, this brother of mine, meaning a fellow Sufi, asked me a question about this. And okay. I responded, and that's a very common literary device for, for how you frame books. Uh, in this one, he makes a big point of having performed istikhara before responding, which is when you pray to God for, for an certainty. answer. For yeah. A, yeah, an answer, a certainty, a, a sign, you know. Sometimes the term is used for dream incubation and stuff like that. But but that he prayed to God for, uh, he performed his takhara before responding to this question. And the question had to do with what is the greatest name of God. Uh, this question of the the Ismail Azam, the, the notion that there is a, a secret name of God that, that uh, unlocks all the power. And he has this lengthy, not that lengthy, a, a page or so, section of kind of noodling around that question and how... Yeah, this is the question his brother has asked him, and he would like to answer it. But the masters are very reticent about this topic. And it's so easy to sow confusion. If you try to answer the question to someone who's not qualified for it, you're just going to make everything worse. And he then basically abstains from talking about it. But instead, let's talk about the known names of God. And, you know, you don't need the secret name of God to do the stuff you're doing. You, you just use the known names of God, but use them smart. Use them, use the right one for the occasion, at the right time. Mm, that's and, beautiful. And that's because he's, he's holding out for you. That He's not just refusing to write about it. He's saying, one could inquire about this. It's, right. a, it's a real question. Oh, However, yes. we're not going to talk about it but, today. But the answer is not for you. Yeah. Yeah, or for anyone else reading this book. That's, yeah. This is a, but you don't need to worry about that. That's a, that's a deep, potentially dangerous topic, and you don't need to mess with it. Mm. Instead, learn how to, how to use the names that are known and the, and the dua appropriately. Yeah. Um, I think we can't complete our discussion, our intro to Albany, without talking right. about letterism. So right. what does he contribute to this science, this uh, field of knowledge? He's um, uh, well, okay. So, the history of letterism is a is a difficult topic. It is an evolving 
area of study. There has been this, this sort of standard narrative for the last 20, 30 years or so, mostly developed by uh, French scholars like uh, Daniel Coriel and Pierre Laurie, that traces it back to a line of uh, uh, fairly obscure Shiite thought, beginning with some of the Rolat, uh, the, the extremist or exaggerator uh, Shi thinkers in the, the first couple of centuries of Islam, and then through certain Ismaili sources, uh, and then into Andalusian thought and figures like Ibn Masada and Barajan. So we had this idea of sort of, a, sort of a secret lineage or a sort of a hidden lineage that's very appealing and it's nice and compact and, you know, I, I echoed it fairly thoughtlessly in the diss and other people have done the same thing. It's a decent enough story, but, but I think what we're finding now with work like Juan Acevedo's work on uh, alphanumeric cosmology and all that is that this stuff was everywhere. The idea that the alphabet was potent yeah. uh, and that the names of God were potent uh, this stuff was everywhere. Something happened in Al-Andalus in the 10th through 12th centuries that, boy, if you want to talk about off-the-cuff assertions that I can't back up with evidence, that I think spawned both Kabbalah and Ledrism uh, yeah. in its Sufi expression. Let me or at least it. helped spawn. Yeah, well, and um, there's a major movement toward magic squares becoming, you know, transforming the ma- magic squares and then, then becoming kind of standardized in an astral context. In that right, well, this is Ben Callum's work on, yeah. on you know, the, uh, the first time you see the attribution of specific planets to specific squares and all that is uh, 11th or 12th century. I'm not going to come up with the name of the writer. But, you know, you have this whole, there's a lot of magic literary stuff going on in Spain. In this, in this period, this is when you talk about the Latin translation movement, when you get all this Hebrew and Arabic comes into Latin, including Picatrix and all these other magical texts. Yeah. You know, that's all literature coming out of this, this Andalusian milieu of primarily Jewish and Muslim thinkers yeah. working on this stuff. So, Ledrism forms in that same pot, you know, yeah. uh, or well, what I would call Ledrism, this, this Sufi Ledrism. Uh, and then it gets brought east by Al Buni and Arabi. Uh, some other figures that there's still, I mean, even Sabayin, there's letterism in there somewhere. Abul Hassan Harali, such a recent dissertation on, on him that's interesting. He talks about the letters. So there's a wave of Western Sufis coming east who bring this stuff with them. The Science of Letters and Names is, uh, I mean, at root, it's about God's creative speech, God's cosmogonic speech. Uh, the Quran in various places notes that when God wants something to exist, he says, be, and it is. Kun fayokun, this famous mm-hmm. formula. In a sense, the letterists take that assertion extremely literally. And that divine speech is, in fact, what makes the world. And they, by they, I mean here mainly Albunian and Muadabi, although you see it as far back. If the writings we have attributed to Ibn Masada are actually by Ibn Masada, you already see it. Uh, from the, In the 10th century, you already see this idea that of uh, one of these, uh, there's a lot of atomic thought, of, of atomism in Muslim thought. Yeah. And, uh, and it comes back up in this letter stuff, but the atoms are letters. So in other words, the stuff that the world is made of is literally at its most basic level, uh, the world is made of text and is made of Arabic. But also numbers. Well, but numbers and text are... Right. Are effectively one thing. That's that's um, important to emphasize, though. I feel like. Uh, oh, well, of course, yeah. There's a, there's a mathematical the alphanumeric thing right, going on. An alphanumerical and alpha mathematical, you know, uh, thing going on there. And Albuni actually, I mean, he ties together all all kinds of threads. You know, you get 
you get texts like like uh, Asulami's epistle on the letters, Asulami, tenth, eleventh century, Eastern Sufi writer, and his book on the letters is a uh, it's a little dull in many ways, frankly. It's it's basically just works through through alliteration. So you take any letter. And then here are four words that have that letter somewhere in there. And that's how you get the meaning of the letters. It's this very, you know, kind of literary, alliterative way of grouping concepts uh, based on, on the letter they start with. Or even sometimes if the words in the, if the letter's in the middle of the word, it'll get counted there. Just to um, make it fit. Kind right, of, right. To just, just, just to group things. But Alberti does that stuff too. Like he he's happily brings in that kind of alliterative talk in, into his lectures. But he's uh, Michael Epstein and Sada Saviri in an article a while ago, ten years ago, on the uh, so-called Rasalat al-Haruf of Sahel uh, Tostori, propose two forms of letterism. One of which is sort of general letter lore, uh, and one of which is this secret Shiite line that is deeply cosmological, that is primarily concerned with the hidden structure of the universe. Um, and Albuni is certainly primarily concerned with the secret structure of the universe, but he's happy to bring in other kinds of letter lore and stuff like that when, yes. it's, when it's helpful. You see this in the all the way back in the the Greek tradition where someone like uh, Marcus, the, the so-called Gnostic, Marcus the Valentinian, right. he's, he's primarily concerned with the creation of reality, through letters, letter numbers. Yeah. But he's also happy to indulge in a bit of numerology and, you know, he's interested in all that kind of stuff. Right, right, right. So e- easy applications of letters to, to tasks and whatnot. And for a long time, I tried, you know, when you have to do these, like, one-sentence descriptions of what letterism is, I tried things along the lines of uh, letterism investigates the relationship between divine speech and material reality. It's about how does God's speech become the world? Mm. And then how can you... Take part in that process, right? Well, that's that's, that's something I've been reshape reality through 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 the letters. Uh, recently, I'm finding it more helpful to speak in, in kind of more uh, disciplinary terms. That that letterism, I think, the biggest mistake to make when thinking about letterism is thinking that it's just letter war. And this thing that that comes to that flies under the banner of Ilma Haruf al is certainly has lots of letter war in it, but it is also about the divine names. It's about the cosmology. It ends up combining all manner of philosophical cosmology, theology in the formal sense, kalam, uh, discourse, astrology, yeah, uh, and uh, tafsir, uh, uh, exegesis of the Quran, and I mean central. Uh, actually, Matal Farshadat Albuni says the reason the letters are important is they help us understand the Quran better. Even that title, Lata'afelashalat, is a, a reference to earlier literature about exegesis, about about botany, esoteric forms of exegesis. You know, uh, so he kind of frames the whole book as exegetical, uh, which is fantastic because mm. it, it's not like any other exegesis of the Quran you ever read. You know, so letterism is about all these things. Uh, but I've I've come around to arguing that letterism is primarily a cosmological discourse that has some quote unquote magical elements to it. Uh, and again, I think, well, as we were discussing uh, the other day, uh, you know, I think the magic stuff for Albuni, I don't think he's inventing that stuff. I think this is stuff that's known. People know that Alfalk work. Uh, you know, people know these things about these certain techniques. He's more interested in, when we take the known facts of the efficacy of these methods, what can we learn about the secret structure of the universe? Right, theorizing, theorizing from the data to a theory. Exactly. He's sort of giving a, he's giving a, a, a sound cosmological basis to why 
why a magic square of letters and numbers would would be able to affect reality in some way, or why praying to certain divine names at certain hours can more effectively yeah. uh, shape reality. So um, it's a very integrated way of thinking. It's very holistic. And it's very diverse. I mean, you know, the, the other great letterist writer is, is Ibn Arabi, and there are many, many, many similarities between Ibn Arabi and Albuni's thoughts, but there are also many, many, many differences. So speculative. Uh, it's highly speculative. Yeah. It's highly speculative. And in Arabi, I mean, we could debate this all day, uh, whether or not he condemns the use of letters for practical ends. Some people, uh, the people who want to keep Sufism mysticism yep. will argue that, that, oh, no, he had no truck with this. There's some this, problems with that claim, though. Stuff. There is a real problem with that claim. Like there's autograph a, manuscripts of his. Yes. And there's a great line in the Futahat where he's talking about some people who are arguing about whether or not you could use single letters to do things or letters only in combination. And he basically said, if I had promised not to, to do this stuff, I could have blown their minds with, with what you could do with a single letter. And he really, I, mean, I don't remember the exact phrase. Have a little suck up. It basically translates as I could have blown their minds you know, about, about so, what you could do. So his, his relationship, he also says in his Contable Meme, he says you can't write about the practical stuff because everyone's going to think you're a sorcerer. Interesting. And a, and a heretic. And that, of course, historically is what kind of ends up happening to Albuni eventually. But yeah, so there's, there's, it's a complicated relationship. But yeah. uh, a lot of his stuff is, is more on the theological or theosophical and, uh, side. And Albuni is much more open about practical elements of it. Yeah. Uh, but they are, as far as I'm concerned, they are, they are drinking from the same cup. Noah Gardner, thanks for introducing me great Albuni to us and letters stay esoteric.